you know, talk as much shit as you want. But this song, it really puts the dynamic range of the didgeridoo on display. It can do drone notes, <laughs> coughs over drone notes, breathy scratches over drone notes. <laughs> Hello and welcome to another episode of 1001 Album Complaints. It's the show where friends, musicians, complainers, but most importantly, music fans tell the stories behind history's most influential albums as immortalized in the list of the 1001 albums you must hear before you die. We'll hit some history, give you some context on the artist and album, and then dive into some of the actual tracks. We'll also be dropping in clips along the way, so don't worry if you're unfamiliar with the album or the artist. Now, as musicians, we've got nothing but respect for anyone with the guts and dedication to pour their hearts out on the tape, but it's also fun to nitpick the things you love. So just a warning, we're probably going to have some hot takes on this album, too. Now, at the end of all this, we're going to vote on whether you actually need to hear this album before you die, and then we'll randomly select next week's album. I want to thank you for spending some time with us today, and to start things off, I want to tell an anecdote about the leader of today's band. For their first music video, which was also their first single, the lead singer went to London's Greenpeace office and gathered the most intense and upsetting video footage he could find and used that as the backdrop for the video, a video which was banned on MTV in the US because it was over-the-top upsetting, a good initial rallying cry right out of the gate for an acid jazz dance funk protest album. (laughs) My name is Adam. I've been playing music for 30 years, played professionally for over a decade, and today I'm going to be leading us through the 1993 debut release for the UK band Jamiroquai, an album called Emergency on Planet Earth. We'll get to our crew introductions in just a minute, but first let's jump right into the music with the first track off this album. This is a song called When You Gonna Learn. All right, now that we've got a taste of what we've been listening to this week, let's throw it around the studio and get our crew introductions by way of a tweet-length review of this album. And today, let's go to Alan first. Hey, this is Alan, and my tweet-length review is, when you introduce yourself to the world with a didgeridoo as the (laughs) very first note on your debut album, you're already fighting an uphill battle. The question is whether a few pockets of really great musicianship and some pretty nice production is enough to climb out of that hill. Tom, what do you got for us? I have what I think will be the shortest tweet length review that anyone has had on this podcast so far. Ready for this? Yes. Stevie Wonderbread. (laughs) (laughs) Man, I knew Stevie Wonder was going to come up, but I didn't know it was going to come up this quick. Well done, (laughs) sir. All right, Tom, thank you. Well, this is Adam, and my tweet was, 
What's not to love about a preachy environmentalist, protest movements, global politics, and a band with about as many mouths to feed as some of the third world countries that he's singing about? And my follow-up shorter tweet was, Snarky Puppy featuring Greta Thunberg. <laughs> I thought you were going to say featuring Greta Van Fleet, just because I'm already <laughs> primed <laughs> for hatred. <laughs> oh, man, I, I don't know how this is boating for our friends over at Jamiroquai. But okay, so we've got our tweets. We, we know who's on the episode today. We know the album. Let's throw it back around the room and get some of your general impressions. Guys, how was your week? Yeah, this was interesting. I actually was like looking forward to getting into this one a lot. And I think the reason is because I do have some history with this band in the sense that when I started to get really serious about bass playing, which you could argue still hasn't really happened. But <laughs> when I decided to sit down and actually start like playing along with actual bassists and studying the way people put lines together and stuff. I listened to a lot of Jamiroquai specifically because of Stuart Zender, who I, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit. Sure. Sure. I do remember distinctly at the time feeling like this is killer bass work. This is killer instrumentation. It's ass moving. It's all that stuff. But I didn't give two shits about the songs or the song craft. Like I was really just playing to learn funk and funk grooves. And I wanted to see if that perspective or that sentiment changed over the years. And I don't know that it had. I will say this was a lot like jazzier than I expected. Um, There's certainly like jazz pop and the, the snarky puppy thing you mentioned. I keyed in on that, too. I actually wrote them down as a frame of reference. But I came away sort of with the same impression I've always had. You know, great musicianship, but it's something that's just a little lacking in the songwriting, I think. It's soulless. I feel like all of this music is lacking in soul. And that is what Stevie Wonder brings in abundance. And I know that they get compared to him. as He's JK, their lead singer, is doing a Stevie Wonder impression about half the time. But Stevie Wonder's got soul. And on the snarky puppy side of things, I think it's a construction issue. Snarky puppy has drama in their music. Sure. And it's really hard to have drama in your music when everybody's going 100% of the time, 100% of the time. If everybody's constantly in and it's just from moment one, it's there's nothing to build to. There's nowhere to go. And it makes the music lack a lot of drama that I really feel like a good jazz band has dramatic music, even a band like Modesky, Martin, and Wood, and another acid jazz trio. No vocals, lots of drama in their music. This, somehow, you throw in 25 more guys and a vocalist, and you suck all the life and drama out of it. I knew very little about these guys, but someone turned me on to them in like 2005, and then I went pretty crazy on them for like six months, where I listened to every album up until their 2005 release, like just constantly for like six months, went really hard on them and then just kind of forgot about them. So it's been probably 10, 15 years since I've revisited this album and this band. And at its best, pretty badass grooves with a message at a time when Ace of Bass and Meatloaf were at the top of the UK charts. (laughs) At its worst, it sounds like it was the background music for like the cable TV's off-forgotten preview channel from back in the day. But I think they have an interesting story. I think what they were coming out against in the UK scene, they definitely stood out. I'll, I'll give them that. It's a very interesting approach to a band to say, we're going to put together a bunch of ass-shaking party music and then just bummer-ass lyrics. <laughs> it doesn't mesh. Again, there's just... There's just connections are not quite being made 
where they should be made. And it's not a diss on the band. I feel like their playing is top notch. And you are right. Like Stuart Zender is a fantastic bass player. I think he's got a lot of groove, a ton of pocket, a lot of feel. He gets good tone. Oh, yeah, definitely. That'll come up later. Yeah. Yeah. But you throw in these freshman year of college socially conscious lyrics that are kind of bitchy about like, why isn't everybody doing their part? Yeah. It's like, shut the fuck <laughs> up. Come on. Just at your private school in England. And I was yeah, going to say yeah. it, it may have hit harder in 93 UK. And it's hard not to make the comparison as sort of base as it is to Rage Against the Machine. But I feel like at least if we're going to make that comparison with being socially forward, the lyrics fit the music, right? Like it was hard hitting and it was in your face. And I do think, you know, Zach De La Roca had a sense of history. I know he's young when he wrote a lot of lyrics, but there felt like there was some gravitas to it. And I didn't really like pick up that vibe. This is like an English trust fund kid who gets into Native American tribal <laughs> issues and then decides that he's going to make that his entire persona along with gigantic floppy hats. And like, he seems fucking insufferable. Like, I would not want to hang out with this guy at all. And I know that I have a bias. I'm well known for my bias against the Rolling Stones because I think Mick Jagger seems like an asshole. JK seems like an asshole. And I don't think I would enjoy it, spending time with him. Most of the interviews I've seen from him back in the day, very highfalutin that he was better than everybody. That certainly wasn't a check mark in the pro column, was hearing interviews from him. One of my critiques, and again, a lot of 90s albums have this, is the sheer length of this album. It's 55 minutes, and that's because there's two tracks on there that are close to 10 minutes each. And it's almost like JK, the lead singer, knew of, that I was going to complain about this 30 years in the future because he said, quote, the thing is, though, when you've got all these great musicians, you want to use them and you want to give them room to play. And I wanted this to be an album, not a collection of three-minute songs. I didn't want tracks to be rigid, stuck-in-the-verse-chorus thing. All the people I'd been listening to were jazz fusion bands. They didn't do three-minute tracks, they just played, which is why Blow Your Mind, which is a song on later on the album, is eight and a half minutes long. Well, he didn't want it to be three-minute songs because he's not a songwriter, to be fair. And I'm not trying to shit on the guy, but like he, from what I read... Correct me if I'm wrong. I know you did a lot of the research as we got him, but you know, I read that he doesn't really play an instrument and that the way that he would write songs is he would mouth out different parts and melodies, you know, on balance isn't like, it's cool. I mean, I think some of the stuff on here is good, but I would opt for letting the musicians play for 10 minutes if I didn't really have uh, much to contribute. Yeah. I take issue with his comment that he wanted to give the musicians space to play because I feel like these songs all lack space to breathe because everything is going over top of each other all the time. There's pockets where some things drop out and it's, you know, you'll get just the bass or something like that. But most of the time it's like Mahavishnu orchestra, but funk. Yeah. And yeah. with a whiny guy talking about how you shouldn't be driving so much. I don't <laughs> get it. <laughs> which which becomes super, super hypocritical later in the story. <laughs> there is this thing that they do. And again, Alan, I wonder if it's because he's not a songwriter. He doesn't necessarily know song craft. And I was thinking about this thing in my head, and we'll go through it when we get into the songs, but it seems like they do this thing that I called an anti-chorus. And I don't know if that's an actual thing, but it's like whenever the chorus came along, 
there was no resolution. And so you never really use the same structure as a chorus that we think of, which is, okay, I can relax. Here's the chorus. So we'll get into that. Just wanted to plant that seed. Yeah. Well, I think it fits with what Tom is saying and what also, you know, I know like Rob preaches a lot, which is like the virtue of patience and how difficult it actually is to let something percolate and let it build. Because I agree, there's there's definitely not a lot of like patience. They really just hit you over the head, but they know what they're trying to do for sure. I, I will give them that. All right, so let's jump into some history. So right off the bat, this is a UK band. They had moderate success in the US. So I know we have a decent number of listeners from the UK, which is friggin' amazing. So sharpen up your pencils, take notes and let me know what I miss on this episode. We'll have the email address at the end of the show. But like most bands, this story begins with the story of a didgeridoo player. And <laughs> I've heard enough. Yeah. Click. He's on a walkabout. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no, he, the didgeridoo player is not actually the crux of the band. But I think this is the first time that we've heard didgeridoo on the podcast. Maybe nope, in the Fe- nope, Fela nope. Kuti? No, it was in the... MIA episode. Oh. That one where she's rapping with the little kids and getting out rapped by eight year olds. Yeah. <laughs> My name is Wally. That's all I recall. Yeah. Yes. And then I go home yeah. and play some ditch. <laughs> Look, I, I'm just going to get this out there. I don't want to bury the lead here. I'm all about bringing new things into the mix, but this ain't it. Like, <laughs> it's not. And it kind of reminds me, I won't say the band's name or where this band was located because I think they still play, but it reminds me of a band that I used to play with, not in the band, but my band would play in the same like scene as them. And they were amazing. They were a great band, but for some reason they let this didgeridoo player no. like, hang on <laughs> and not only just come on for a song or two, he was on stage the entire time and they oh. would just shoehorn in these solos. And it just was, this was weak. All right. So the story actually begins with a guy named Jason Lewis Cheatham, AKA JK a.k.a. Cat in the Hat, a.k.a. The Mad Hatter. So for the purposes of today, we'll be calling him JK. And from what I've read, so fans say that he's a three-sided character. First is a frenetic and crazy entertainer. The second is a nature-loving, mystic-oriented hippie. Third is a scrappy, hardworking, and determined band leader. Critics say he's a dick, hard to work with, and a hypocrite. So I think you can hear at least some of those personality traits come out on this album as well. You got to give it to the critics sometimes. Yeah, right. You know, sometimes they're right. (laughs) (laughs) So he was born in 1969 in Manchester, England. His mother was a woman named Adrienne Judith Pringle, a.k.a. Karen Kay. That was her stage name. And she was a relatively successful cabaret singer in England. Was she also the heiress of the Pringles fortune? Is that what we're going with? I don't know. (laughs) The Pringles (laughs) fortune. Famous UK chip crisp company. That's Pringles are a hundred percent American. There is nothing more American than Pringles. They're like, we're gonna take potatoes that are already kind of shaped like this, and we're gonna mash them into a mush, and then we're gonna press them back into potato chip shape. And they're gonna taste fucking delicious. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> weird wavy shape, and then we're gonna put them in a tennis ball can. Yeah. Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> So his mother was very successful, had her own show on the BBC in the 80s called The Karen Kay Show, and she toured extensively around the world. His father was a guitarist from Portugal, a guy named Luis Saraiva, who he would later meet, but not until 2001 when he was 32 years old. So as a younger child, though, Jay would travel with his mother in her touring act and go all over the world. And apparently... 
she fell victim to some pretty predatory management in the 80s and was swindled out of a ton of money. So Jay grows up being very wary of record execs and, and record labels in general. So as he gets into his teenage years, he's living in England, gets into a big fight with his mother when he's 15 and runs away from home, gets into some petty crime, trying to make ends meet, trying to get by. And at some point he gets stabbed and nearly dies, although I could find very little on that. But my guess is that he was running his mouth. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry, that's, that's terrible. <laughs> Nobody deserves to get stabbed. But again, very, very little information on that. Nobody deserves to get stabbed, but some people need to shut the fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> You can't say there's no reason to stab right. Let's just put it yeah. that way. <laughs> oh, my God. So after getting stabbed, he moves back home and works a little bit as a break dancer and some random jobs. It sounds like maybe working at like grocery stores, but he eventually tries his hand at music. So he and a buddy he knew had some gear and a DX100 keyboard, who was the younger cousin of the DX7 that we all know and love. By the way, uh, gear, you're referring to the British slang for weed when you say that? Because this band also seems like they probably were pretty <laughs> they, fond of the sweet They leaf. were pretty fond, yes. I think second or third album, it was a big, big deal because it was a song all about getting high on, on one of the albums. And people <gasps> were shocked. Right, what? He gets dropping their monocles. Well, look, how else are you going to edge out Prodigy in the freaking out squares <laughs> department? <laughs> Maybe all our UK listeners should turn off this episode now before we, <laughs> before we alienate everyone. We love you. Yes, really of course. Do. So he starts messing around with dance beats, and his first known audio recording is in 1988 at a record studio in England called Street Sounds, which was a British compilation record label that specialized in urban and electronic dance music during the mid-80s. So he creates a song called Natural Energy, which is just him kind of vamping over a sampled track. Uh, that doesn't really go anywhere, but that's his first known, like, putting down his voice on, on a recording. He was probably a big Nana Cherry fan. <laughs> I'm just going to guess. <laughs> We're bringing out all the, the big hits. Yeah. All the heavy hitters. <laughs> all the punching bags tonight. <laughs> we still need to hit Kid Rock and... Uh, Drive Like Jehu. There you go. I would rather listen to Drive Like Jehu than Jamiroquai, definitely. <laughs> While all this is happening, there's another guy named Toby Smith. So Toby is a classically trained keyboard player and got a scholarship for music in high school. Eventually gets into building his own amps and really went more into the producing and recording aspect. But around 15 or 14 years old, he starts recording stuff at his house with a cheap multi-track tape recorder that he got. And he starts clubbing with his sister, at 17, they start going to all the dance house rave scenes in the 80s in England. And he heard the music and thought, I can do this. This doesn't sound that hard. So he drops out of high school and starts making dance records and actually sold his first song. He sold 12,000 copies as a kid, as like a 17-year-old. Good for him. But again, don't drop out of high school, kids. <laughs> High school's not Especially hard. Especially nowadays. You totally do all that other stuff <laughs> while still half-assing your way through high school. It's not that tough. <laughs> Don't shoot yourself in the foot. Yeah, it's not an all-or-nothing proposition. <laughs> yeah. So Toby, you know, around England, meets Jay at a mutual friend's house, and Jay plays an early version of the first single on this album called When You Gonna Learn, probably around 1991. And on that version, Jay had sampled a song from some other band called The New Heavies. But he submits that song as a demo to a record label called Acid Jazz Records, who picks him up for it. 
Alan, I didn't realize until right now, you're right. He doesn't write songs. He can't perform music. I mean, I, I knew that, but I didn't think about that, which is why his first demo is taking somebody else's music and putting lyrics over it. I will say, though, in a way that probably does free you from some constraints, because, you know, like if I try to sit down on a guitar and write a song, I can get by. But I am very constrained by like the limited musicality I have on guitar, whereas if you're willing to just think it up in your head and just transmit that to somebody who can realize it, you know, maybe that gives you an advantage of some sort. Yeah. We've talked about it before. The lack of knowledge of the rules can really help you at times. Sometimes it produces absolute garbage. But if you're like, this sounds cool. And people are like, well, you shouldn't do that. You're like, yeah, but it sounds cool. Well, it's like when you're playing poker and like the rookie goes all in when he shouldn't and it like freaks you out because you're like, I don't know how to respond to that because you're doing the wrong thing. And it can actually be like a little bit of a wild card. Now, I'm not sure what happens to this initial agreement that he signs with Acid Jazz Records because shortly after he gets a much larger deal with a cleaned up version of this original song that, that we'll get into in a bit. So a month after he gets this initial contract, this keyboard player Toby gets the call that Jay wants a songwriting partner and a keyboard player. So they get together and write in about 10 minutes what eventually becomes the second single off this album. Now, between then and 1992, the dates were kind of hard to cobble together, but he starts assembling a band. And the first recorded live performance of the band Jamiroquai was in 1992 at a place called the Jazz Cafe in London. And it was a showcase gig. And showcase gigs are where hype spreads and you get a bunch of record execs or A&R guys out to watch your show or your 20 minutes in this showcase. I listened to it. Again, they're a solid live band. I watched some of their live stuff. They have a big concert in Verona that you can find on YouTube, and it crushes. Like These guys are a great live band as well. It's not just a studio thing. You know, them being a great live band makes a lot of sense because when it's live, you mind a lot less that everybody's just frenetically playing constantly because it's an energy thing. I paid for two hours, exhausted. Yeah. Me, right? Yeah, I want everybody on this stage playing every time, right. every second of two hours. That makes sense. I could see them being a super fun live band. Well, and I do think for, you know, I know we've already like heaped some shit onto this guy, but it is clear that he assembled whether there were people that were recommended to him or I don't know how he cobbled together these musicians, but he put together a great band. And by many accounts, he is an entertainer and he is a showman when he is performing. And, you know, I, I have to think that resonates in a live act. I mean, what else is he doing if he's not, not playing an instrument during a 10 minute song? <laughs> That's a great point. Cause I did want to talk about that, which is you're right. He's putting this band together And I'm going to say as a product, but that's not a bad thing. Like he's a determined guy. He has a vision of what he wants. He had the Buffalo man silhouette, like their icon all put together. Right. And he is the mastermind and he pulled it together and they took off. So I definitely got to give him credit And eventually they raided the U.S. Capitol building. (laughs) (laughs) Every time I saw that, I thought about the QAnon shaman guy. (laughs) It may actually be JK. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, so I mean, he he did it, right? He put it all together. They get discovered. They get a record deal. And in late August of 1992, they play a gig in Amsterdam. Then they play three gigs in October in England. And When You Gonna Learn, the first single is released on October 19th of 1992. Alan, you had mentioned 
this deal came through. Very shortly after, Jay is offered a record deal from Sony Soho. And I'm not going to say how much it was for. That's for our numbers bit. So we'll just say that he got a, an incredibly lucrative deal after this single was released. Is it an amount that Dr. Evil would say in a sinister <laughs> manner? <laughs> Potentially. So now the pressure is on because they have this first hit single. It's doing great. And they wanted to stick to their guns, but they knew they also needed something that would make a splash in the charts. So this is where Jay and Toby, they get together and they start putting music together. And Jay is just mouthing the parts to Toby, who's writing it on the keyboards and writing down the drum charts and all this. Jay writes most of the lyrics, probably not surprising. He said that at the time, he was a very angry young man who saw all the wars and the starvation going on and... I feel like other protest albums we've hit, it's the same story, which is like, yeah, nothing's changed. It's 30 years later. So either A, give up and don't try, or B, there's not really that big a deal because the world didn't blow up a year after he said it was going to. Or, you know, option C, make a shitload of money off of it. And then you don't really have to worry because you're rich and the rich people will be fine. Well, not only is he rich and I, you know, not to like jump the gun. I, I know we're, we're going to get to this guy. We need to talk about this guy's like, I don't want to say it's his persona, but he's universally almost seen as sort of a dick, but also kind of a hypocrite. Yeah, man. Because he took to owning this like fleet of sports cars and became kind of an asshole about it. And I don't know if we're, anyone's going to mention that video where he gets like headbutted by the paparazzi. Did you guys come across that at all? I didn't watch it. I've read about it, though. It was around the same time that Bjork was getting into her paparazzi madness and beating up the, the cameraman. Listen, I'll never defend a paparazzi. They're parasites, scum of the earth. But, you know, in this video, I would encourage people to look it up. He rolls up to this huge crowd in a Bentley or, or, or some shit. <laughs> Right. Apparently somebody knocks into it. He gets out of his car. He finds like the shortest guy he can find who's <laughs> holding a camera because he's also a pretty short guy. Gets in his face, accusing him of putting a dent in the car. The guy headbutts him. It's it's actually pretty funny. Again, it's hard to look back on this music and feel like yeah, I can get with that when you're singing about the environment, but then you become this like, you know, collector of Aston Martins and Bentleys and seems kind of weird, right? And if you had just been singing about party music the whole time, nobody would give it a shit. Nobody would fine. care. Yep. You know, at that point you're Missy Elliott and you're like, yeah, own all the cars you want. Who gives a shit? One point of correction here, Alan. I believe that the singular form of paparazzi is paparazzo. Oh, <gasps> paparazzi. Well done. <laughs> Yes. Our grammar corner, which (laughs) soon to eclipse by the numbers as our favorite segment. (laughs) But that is a great transition point. Thank you, Alan. So let's jump in to our favorite segment by the numbers. The number eight. It was eight months after they released that first single that the album actually was released. So that whole time they were writing music and slowly were releasing singles along the way. So the first one was released in October 19th of 92. The second single was March 1st of 1993. Third single, May 24th of 1993. And the final single was on August 2nd of 1993. Next number, 1.2 million. That is the copies sold worldwide of this debut album. It's pretty good for a debut. Right? Yeah. I mean, that's pretty damn good for a debut. I think REM's debut sold like 100,000 copies, and they were like, what the (laughs) hell? Oh my God, we're amazing. amazing. 
Well, and I'll say it's pretty good, too, because a good percentage of American listeners certainly probably most associate them with like the virtual insanity video. Right. And that whole thing, which came out a few years after this. And I think a lot of people probably consider them a bit of a one hit wonder in that sense. And maybe that is true. But like that number actually surprises me that they sold that many copies before they actually were doing like music videos and had a little bit more acclaim. So I'll respect that. The number three, their first three albums hit number one in the UK. Alan, you had mentioned the contract eight as in an eight album record deal. That's the deal that JK signed with Sony Soho after their first single was released. Eight records from one single. That is insane. That's also usually a bad business move, right? Didn't we had this on the Incubus episode where they they got like a six record deal for six records after they put out their first record and they got screwed because they were hugely popular by the time they're putting out records four and five and they're like, I'm still riding off this like $600,000 advance that I got, you know? Clearly they've gone on to be successful by most objective measures, right? But I don't know that I would have seen eight albums worth of content. You know, I don't know if they would just give that out to like secure, you know, maybe it's like a football contract where you can get out of it whenever you want, or, you know, it's like front loaded. I I don't know, but that's kind of shocking. Well, I also, I could see from the standpoint of a record executive being like, these songs are all pretty disposable in my opinion. And like, so you can just whip out a whole bunch of disposable (laughs) shit. The kids are going to eat it up. (laughs) It's great. People are buying it. Yeah. Get back into the factory. Yeah. yeah, you don't need intense personal experience. It's not like the Counting Crows first record or something like that, where it's like, wow, this is a story of like your suicidal depression. You got eight more of those in you? This is like <laughs> war and poverty. That shit's going to be around forever. Just keep writing about that. Who cares? Evergreen material. All right, the number 24. It's how many years it took for Jay to fulfill and honor the contract. So they have actually released eight albums between 1993 and 2017. So he, wow. it wasn't one of those things where he renegotiated or got out of it. He stuck with it and managed to put out eight albums. All right, 26 million. That is worldwide album sales. It's too many albums. That's too many sales. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not coming in to hate on these guys, but that's too many albums sold. That's a lot of fucking albums. That is a lot, which explains... Well, we'll get to that number in a second, but here's, here's another number. The number 2,000, which was the money in British pounds, that Stuart Zender, the bass player's mother, gave him when he left home at 17 in order to try to make a living playing music. He used that money to buy a Warwick streamer bass. A good decision. 2,000 pounds? Yeah. I don't know. Is that good in 1992? In 1992? I feel like you overpaid for that one. I mean, listen, I can buy a Warwick streamer right now off of Sweetwater for 1300 bucks. All right. So now there are, there's also $4,000 ones. So, you know. All right. And now the big number that we've all been waiting for, we've all been talking about it. JK's car collection is worth $48 million. <sighs> but make sure you're not supporting capitalism and polluting the environment. <laughs> A lot of starving kids could be fed with that $48 million. Yes, I gotta it say. Could. Yeah. I mean, who needs like electric cars and renewable energy yeah. when you can just drive your fucking two mile per gallon sports cars around? <laughs> On later albums, there's a song called Cosmic Girl, where he 
had one of his cars, which was like one of three specially minted Lamborghinis. And for the video, he was going to drive it and the moving company wrecked it. And so then he like bought another one and they wrecked that one (laughs) too or something. I mean, it's just the amount of money that this guy has spent on cars is remarkable. Not Jay Leno level. And again, nobody cares about Jay Leno having a huge car collection because Jay Leno is not out there preaching Preaching at you. Yeah. Yeah. All right, and our final number to round out the segment is the number two, and that is my personal request for you, our listener, yes, you, to share this episode with two people in your circle of Jamiroquai fans or haters. It's simple. In fact, as I'm saying this, you can click the three dots right there on your phone next to this episode. Hit share. It's a small ask, but has tremendous potential in helping us grow the show, spread the word, and hopefully piss off an even larger group of people. And with that... Gentlemen, how about we jump into some songs? All right, so we're going to jump back into the first song that we dropped in at the top there. This is a song called When You Gonna Learn. Side one, track one, album one. What'd you think? (laughs) (laughs) No, they didn't need to bring the didgeridoo out. They could have just had you sit on a stool. (laughs) I've seen some versions of the song where the word didgeridoo is actually in parentheses after this song. I think this is a pretty good song. Like all joking aside, I think it's ballsy to lead off with a didgeridoo, as I mentioned earlier. But I think this is definitely a strong opening statement. I think it's a good encapsulation of what you're going to get from the band. I think it's pretty danceable. I think like most of the songs, there isn't much of a vocal like hook. It's not like songcraft in the traditional sense, but I think it hit the mark time wise. I think it's a pretty representative sample of what these guys do. I would agree with that. Absolutely. And I would agree with the statement that there's not a vocal melodic hook in this song. For half of these songs, it feels like he walked into the recording booth with no idea of what he was going to do and just started vamping. This is indicative of the biggest problems that I have with this band and this album is this is kitchen sink song arrangement. All right. You've got bass, guitar, strings, horns, drums, other percussion, a didgeridoo, a flute, piano, and then multiple tracks of JK all on top of each other and kind of all fighting for your oral attention and it just it's too much a lot of space and a lot of patience and a more stripped down arrangement would have served this song well i think the bones of the song are okay they're nothing great or special but it's just too much it's too much happening all at once yeah i agree i do feel like the horns are all coming at you right away and it's all it's all sort of happening but you know i guess that's what they're trying to do is hit you over the head with it yeah, I thought it was I thought it was a ballsy choice as well. Again, thinking about the timing, we're talking Ace of Bass was on the radio, Meatloaf was on the radio, and then all of a sudden you've got this again a didgeridoo coming in, and then it jumps in with like a 1970s funk soap opera thing with like the heavy strings and everything. 
I thought it was cool. I thought it was a good, I think, Alan, you've used the term kind of a, a table setting for what we're going to hear on the rest of the album. Speaking of table setting, you know, they have the, the line, yeah, yeah, have you heard the news today? Money's on the menu in my favorite restaurant. <laughs> well, don't talk about quantity because there's no fish left in the sea. What? The, it's like Dr. Seuss bullshit. Yeah, it's it's pretty, terrible. Fucking <laughs> <laughs> whiny asshole. So the the critique of the song structure, it's funny you say that because he put the song together as we hear it on the album. But when he was working with the producer that was assigned to him when they were you know, producing and recording this, the guy wanted to remove half the lyrics. He wanted to turn it into a pop song. And JK was fighting with him. And he was worried that he was even worried about going home overnight because he thought the producer was going to chop everything and print it and be like, sorry, sucks for you. But he came back the next day and took this pop arrangement and turned it back into JK's vision, which is what we hear on this track. And this is actually the start of that anti-chorus template I mentioned at the top, which is the chorus, Tom, like you said, there's no real melody. It doesn't resolve. It's almost like the chorus and the verse are reversed. The verse is where you settle into like the root note and a groove. And then the chorus comes in and it's like, ah, it, it never resolves. It doesn't go where I want it to. And then, so it was interesting. And I see that on most of the songs on this album. So Tom, again, you mentioned like, well, if you don't know the rules, you just do what you feel. So I appreciated that, but it does start to grind on me later on where I just want a chorus where I can feel like I have some relief. All right, let's move on to the, I guess we'll call it the title track, right? This is called Emergency on Planet Earth. So this song, you can tell the influence that Toby had. This screams to me arranged on a piano. This really has that, again, it's that Stevie Wonder feel of a piano player wrote this. It's another song that has a lot of good elements and just doesn't seem to come together for me. And again, 16 seconds in, everybody just starts playing and never stops. Yeah. It gets so old, especially, you know, listen, three, four, five, six. Like, give me some more goddamn dynamics. Give me some drama. Give me some patience. You're just bashing it over the head constantly. I think what separates this kind of music, I think, from what I would consider a, a golden age of that, like, 70s funk. I mean, you mentioned Stevie Wonder a few times. You know, we did Sly Stone, for example, and that's, like, way far out compared to this. You know, I think even, like, Earth, Wind & Fire, like, Tower of Power. Yeah, there's a little something, there's, like, a secret sauce or something that I think sort of comes through. And 
this just to me it feels a little bit like and even you know i'm sort of heaping praise on Stuart zender but even the base work on here it's a little slappy and just sort of like eh, 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 octaves and it's y- pretty sloppy it's got that dropout oh part yeah the bass break to 11 uh, yeah ton of string noise on that Which is really surprising. I mean, almost unthinkable because I've heard a lot of Stuart Zender even on this album. It's really nice bass work. I just found it the tone was off. The treble is way high on the bass tone. It's like really stabby, which then leads to a lot of that errant string noise sound. And when it drops out and it's just the bass, there are methods that you can use to reduce errant string noise and that kind of like it's almost like buzzing like you get that kind of like string buzz where the string is vibrating against the fret yeah right right lower down the neck and you get a little kind of high into it that actually works to his benefit later on on another song where i felt like there was some of that but it worked really well which is just funny just the way you employ it you can get a good like attack from doing that like if it's you know sometimes if your action's like super low people We'll do that intentionally to get that little like bark yeah, from, right. from the sound. But I think what a lot of this comes down to for me, and, and this song is a good example of it, is all the problems that we're, we're mentioning, but there it just isn't a lot of like differentiation. In fact, like as we're even going through these songs now, I'm finding myself having to like re-listen to them in real time almost to figure out like, okay, which one was this again? Because they all like kind of just run together a little bit for me. And so it doesn't feel like there's okay. This song sounds like this and this one has a whole other personality. Like it's just bam. Like here it is. Yeah. A little bit. They run together. This album (laughs) is same, same, same. And every song is same, same, same. And it gets, gets grading by the end of it. I will heap some praise on this song though. So I, one cool thing that I noticed at the beginning with a good headphone, listen, they are playing Morse code. SOS in the beginning over top of there's like a little like, you know, might be like an organ or like a synth thing going ding, 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 while the electric piano sounds like a Wurlitzer is going through a wah wah pedal, which I thought was a very cool intro. And the g- but you're already describing like four things happening at once. <laughs> <laughs> like this is the intro before everything happens. So four things happening. I thought the guitar work was really tight as well. super tight you got to be super precise and super funky and i thought there's three guitar players listed but he nailed it oh there's three oh wow well on the album not necessarily this song so it didn't say if this was gavin dodds simon bartholomew or glenn nightingale who are all listed as guitar players on the album this does the same anti-chorus thing again where you settle in and you feel good in the verse and then the chorus is a lot of just minor or kind of tentative movement so All right, let's move it along to our next song on our focus list. This one is called Revolution 1993. (laughs) 
timeless. Hey bands, young musicians, if you really want to make a timeless song, make sure you put the name of the year you release it in the title. <laughs> hey, Glenn Danzig's Mother 92. Oh, yeah. It's a killer, okay? <laughs> Touche. Touche. Is it wait, is that Mother 93 or is that Mother 92? What is it? Mother 93. God damn it, I even got the I even got it wrong. But there's another 93 song out there that's even more iconically timeless. This song does not need to be this long oh, it's so long for how little content there is yeah. both musically and lyrically the entire song was based upon a good bass tone and like that's it and then he kind of plays that same bass line for 90 percent of the song and it's not doing it for me i felt bad for the drummer because i can't imagine trying to do that in the studio like how many takes did that guy have to do because that is not a drum beat where you're just running rudiments for six and a half minutes you can't splice yeah. that very easily so this poor guy it's like drum rolls basically, yeah right like for yeah. 10 minutes so i mean stamina he gets a stamina award yeah but that sums up the biggest issue with this band is that all the guys i'm not going to give jk props on this one but like most of the people are really good at what they do and it just doesn't come together you have a drummer doing objectively impressive stuff you have a, an objectively really good bass player guitar players that are hitting tight super funky stuff good string arrangements you know the backup singers kind of suck but whatever all in all everything is there to make a killer album and it just doesn't doesn't happen it's almost like less than the sum of its parts in that huh. sense. Yeah. This has to be a relic of, and we've talked about this many times, of like the CD era of filling time. I mean, there's literally no reason for this song to be 10 minutes long. I mean, I remember growing up ha hating songs that were this song, but came to really appreciate the way that like a Pink Floyd will do it. Or even look, I mean, it sounds crass, but you know, I think even Fish, bands like that, bands like The Dead, can make a coherent song in 10 minutes, but again, it has like the rising action. And his defense of the length of some of these songs is that he did that so that the, he could open it up and let the musicians play. But aside from the flute solo, and then there's a trumpet solo, which are both great, but they only get like, I don't know, four, six, eight measures. And then it's right back into that thing for three minutes. And then they give the trumpet player a couple measures. It's like, you could have crammed all of that way forward and had a four and a half minute song with two killer horn solos on it by the time that flute solo came up i'm like it's great it's not saving this song and then you're like oh a trumpet solo later okay also good i mean the last one didn't save the song right. four <laughs> minutes later i don't care at this point uh, save it for the live show like i wouldn't yeah. bat an eye at 10 minutes song during a live show and this is probably an instance where the producer was like, yo, man, just trim it back. Make a good pop song. And he's like, fuck you. And then, well, like, what, four years later, some producer was like, dude, Virtual Insanity does not need to be 12 minutes. Can we fucking trim this <laughs> down? They trimmed it to like yes. a four-minute song. And then, totally. boom, there we go. Yep. They made millions and millions and millions of dollars off of that. It's like, maybe you should have been listening to these producers the entire time. We're like, no, I know what I want to do. I have a vision. <laughs> but there are just so many very obvious editing points in these songs. We're like, just fucking tighten it up man i would have been on board if they dropped out a third of the instruments playing and started bringing them in as elements to spice things up later in the song and give some more layers and they cut the songs down by 25 percent. i could be way on board for this album and jk never said a word <laughs> <Not to laughs> instrumental if 
if he just was like bah, da, bah, da, 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 bah, instead of fucking saying whatever bullshit he's saying. I will say, just for the record, he has a really good voice. Now, it happens to sound like a lower rent carbon copy of Stevie Wonder. Oh, yeah. It's it's the it's the Stevie Wonder dollar store version of it. I actually I was trying to think of a way to like communicate a meme, which is never a, a good idea. But the whole like, no, no, we have that at home. I was thinking like, <laughs> yeah, we've got Stevie Wonder. <laughs> Dad, can we get the Stevie Wonder album? No, we have Stevie Wonder at home. And it's like a Jamiroquai album. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, that, I mean, that's, uh, hey, I'll take yeah, right, right. Stevie Wonder at home, you know? If somebody called me a dollar store Stevie Wonder, I would get t-shirts made of that. The greatest compliment of my, life. of my career. All right, let's move on to what was my favorite track on the album. This is called Too Young to Die. dug this i thought the strings and the electric piano and the intro were pretty cool and this is my favorite bass tone on the album because it's got some string rattle in there that we kind of talked about earlier it's very muddy but i thought it played nicely because it's so sparse it's basically his voice and the bass kind of nice and and this is the one of the songs where i felt the most dynamics and the most space that they created so th- this was this was my favorite tune on the album i would agree with you my one critique of this song was that i thought it should be about 10 percent faster oh i feel like yep. they live in that universe of about 10 percent faster than this song is kind of their sweet spot but i would agree with you that bass tone is great it's a very hard line to walk with using string noise to your advantage and not having it just sound like muddy bullshit right. and they they do they walk that line well on this very, very solid horns. I thought the horns on this were killer. Just like they could have been in a James Brown song. Yeah, song. yeah. Yeah, this is the track for me. I agree. Everything about the bass is top notch. Normally when you have the the string rattle, you get that like, I, I think we might have talked about it on the Incubus episode where it's a little too like grindy and attacky, but this is still attacky, but it's like fat and it's just meaty and like, it just sits in the mix, like in such a great way. But the line itself too, boom, doom, 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 boom, like it just grooves really hard. Like I'm definitely going to steal this sort of style for, for some <laughs> nice. other stuff. We talked about how he has that Warwick bass. This is the active pickup humbucker bass sound. Just super nice humbucker. I don't know if they if they come with like EMGs or something. Like I have that Spectre, which I absolutely adore. And I feel like that is kind of right in line with the Warwick style, especially the one that I have, which is like 20 plus years old at this point. I, I do, even though I do like the song a lot, the chorus, the... <laughs> 
It's so like, Stevie what? Wonder on the nose. So on the nose. And another anti-chorus where you, you settle into the verse instead of you know, the chorus does this weird thing where, well, first off, you're right. The doo-doo-doos where he sounds like Stevie Wonder. There's no real lyrics and it's very pensive and tentative. It's just and, scatting. It's, it's, yeah. It just seems like they sort of gave up when it came time <laughs> to the chorus. Again, it's like he walked in and he didn't have the lyrics written. And so he just kind of, for half the songs, he just does, like you said, uh, you know, Greta Thunberg slam poetry. And this time he was just like, you know, like, yeah. We're going to round things out here with the last song on our focus list. This is called Digging Out. I wasn't even on the Incubus episode, but I listened to it just to hear you guys talk smack on Battlestar Scratch Lactica, <laughs> where they dedicate a song because they feel bad because their buddy brought all this DJ equipment. It's the same thing with this. They feel bad. Their buddy brought this didgeridoo. It's nine feet long. It's like, oh, we got to give him a song. So he brought this wooden fucking tube. So therefore, yeah, we have to listen. I, you know, talk as much shit as you want, but this song. It really puts the dynamic range of the didgeridoo on display. It can be drone notes, coughs over drone notes, breathy scratches over drone notes. <laughs> it's such a fucking one-note instrument. Why is it here? It's like that slap instrument at the beginning of Sweet Emotions. <laughs> like, it does right, one right. thing. You can only hit it like that. You wouldn't make an entire track out of that. <laughs> And you know what? I was going to say, I actually wanted to steal one of Alan's comments from the Incubus episode, which is it sort of kind of also sounded like one of those YouTube jam-along tracks in the background <laughs> for like the drum and bass. <laughs> it just sort of was, oh, you know, uh, yeah, nobody put a lot of work into this one. No work was done on this song. I don't understand why this is on the album. At least they had the common decency to only make it like two and a half Right, right. It wasn't 20 All right. Well, gents, there you have it. So what we do now on the show is that we throw it around the studio. We get those crucial votes on whether or not you actually need to hear this album before you die. So let's throw it over to Alan first. If it hasn't been clear already, it's a no for me, but I actually think they're, I'm not going to say they're an important band, but I don't think they're a, a band that should just get like dismissed or tossed into the trash heap of music history. I do think they were trying to do something that wasn't really being done much at that time. You know, I think it's easy now to look at, you know, Pharrell Williams and Bruno Mars and a lot of these other groups that are making a nice living out of this like retro sound. But I don't think that was happening a lot at this time. And so I'll give them their due for like trying something different and 
you know, I think they tap into that old school sound in, in a generally authentic way in the way that it sounds. But I don't think there's enough here that warrants, you know, must listen to, to be honest. All right, Tom, you mentioned, you know, Bruno Mars, these kind of modern throwback sounds. And usually I will give credit for musical lineage. Is it pointing in a direction? But I don't think Bruno Mars is listening to Jamiroquai and being like, that's the sound I want to emulate. He's listening to the guys that Jamiroquai was emulating and saying, I want to emulate those guys. And yeah, I got to give this a no. I don't hate Jamiroquai. In fact, again, I would probably see them live. Let's put it this way. If I was at a festival and Jamiroquai were playing on a stage, I would go see them. I wouldn't buy a ticket to a Jamiroquai show, but they have all the elements for a really good band, and I could see that coming together well live. It did not come together well on this album. This is their only album on the list, and I'm with you, Alan. They don't deserve to be just tossed out and dismissed, but you don't need to hear this album. It's a no from Tom, which means my vote is irrelevant. However, I will still give you my thoughts. So... I think these guys are important, more so in the UK from all the research that I did. And at the time, they were coming out of left field. I know I mentioned Ace of Base, but that is such a great touch point for early 90s pop. And for these guys to truly come from a built-from-the-ground-up band who wanted to do danceable protest music, as stupid as that sounds, I think they accomplished it. And you know, nuts similar, and gum together at last. <laughs> <laughs> and similar to a lot of protest music, it's still a salient now, even though I, I don't think that there was a lot of meat behind the protest statements. And I think there's some killer musicians on this album. So while it's not an enthusiastic yes from me, I'm going to give it like a meh yes. So, but that does not matter because we've got two no's. So I'm sorry, Jamiroquai and JK, you're off the list, at least in our eyes. Well, we softened the landing for you a little bit. Right, we did soften the landing a little bit. All right, so Rob is not here. We usually throw things over to Rob and the mailbag, but I have been given the mailbag this week. So I've got a couple missives that we're going to work through right now. They both come from folks in the UK. So this is perfect timing with this album. So Martin from the UK writes, Hi guys, just a little background for you about the Kinks Village Green album. You question the choice of single from the album. Originally, there was a very different track listing to the album. Tracks got removed and others got added. One of the tracks removed was Days, an obvious single which did well in the UK. Check it out. It's a great song. I'll have to do that. All right. Martin, thank you. All right, we all got to go listen to the song Days. Next up, Nick from Manchester writes, Hello, complainers. I love it already. I'm an avid listener of music-related podcasts, and you have swiftly risen into my top two podcasts. I've been meaning to get in touch for a while to let you know how much I'm enjoying listening to you guys. As I think someone else has said, it now feels like I'm coming to hang out with you when I turn on a new episode. I feel weirdly comfortable in your presence, and I love the easy dynamic that only really comes from long-term friendships, and I find myself laughing as much as appreciating your musical insights long-term acquaintances please long-term Long -term acquaintances <laughs> friends i <laughs> object to the term friends <laughs> yeah he he obviously hasn't met us in person 
what's what's the number one podcast if we're the if we're number two i want to know oh, that's a good one question yeah. nick from manchester write back and let us know what has edged us out and we'll, <laughs> we'll see if we can get into your number one spot so nick continues i am pleased to say that i don't find any of you irritating <laughs> he definitely has a medicine person yet then <laughs> He goes <laughs> He goes on to say, although I still can't tell the difference between Rob and Tom's voices, everyone else has a fairly distinct voice, but I do struggle to differentiate those two. Maybe it's an English thing. I think it's in terms of voices, I think it's Phil and then it's everyone else. It's just right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I I assume that you, Tom and Rob, you, you guys have have spent you know, the better part of twenty five years around each other constantly. So maybe there's you've picked up each other's vocal tics or something like that. I don't know. I just feel like I have an insane amount of vocal fry and horrible sibilance, <laughs> and I don't understand how people can't pick that out immediately. Every time I hear my own voice, I'm like, oh god, oh stop talking. Yeah. I mean, yeah, who's the guy that uh, his voice sounds like he's been eating Marlboro Reds <laughs> since he was four, 14 years old? That's Rob. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> all right, so Nick rounds out the message saying, Love the Thriller episode in particular, with you all enthusing with such joy over the many wonders of the production, songwriting, musicianship, etc. on the album, and the heart and bones for your takedown of Cars Are Cars. <laughs> <laughs> keep, that song's terrible. Keep up the good work. That is a terrible, terrible song. All right. Don't forget, we've got a week to prepare and an hour to share. So if we missed something crucial, got something wrong, or if you think we absolutely crushed this episode, please let us know by dropping an email to 1001albumcomplaints at gmail.com. We found that over the last two years of doing this show, you, the audience, have provided a ton of insight, context into a lot of the artists and albums that we cover. So please continue to write in with your experience of this album. And one last bit of business now before I throw it over to Tom, and that November is going to be Listener Request Month. You've all been doing a great job of sending us your album requests via email, Instagram, Spotify comments, carrier pigeons, and we need you to keep it up. We're very excited to hear from you, our audience, about what you guys want to hear. So remember, your requests need not be limited to the list of the 1001 albums. So vote early, vote often, and we'll be revealing the results of the voting in the next few weeks. Okay. Now, with all that, this would be a great opportunity for people to organize like a big troll campaign and make us do like another Kid Rock album or the Corey or Corey Feldman album. Oh, God. <laughs> I'll do the Corey Haim album, but not the Corey Feldman album. <laughs> or the Steven Seagal right. album, but like for real. <laughs> but for real. He's got a couple. So <laughs> there's still some green pastures there that we can explore. Oh, man. I think they're all on the list. Oh, yeah, of that's course. Well, they should be. Of course. Voice of a generation. <laughs> All right. With all that being said, we're going to throw it over to Tom, who's got his hand on that albinator to let us know what we're going to be listening to next week. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I have the albinator here. It has been protesting big oil while flying around the country in its <laughs> private jet. And it has just landed and took a gigantic SUV all to itself. Uber back here. <laughs> To let me know what the next album is going to be. So without any further ado, drum roll, please. We will be listening to... The album is Double Nickels on the Dime. And the band is Minutemen. I uh -huh. have heard of this band. 
I have never heard this band. Well, actually, you have heard the band. Don't fucking tell me what I know. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think they do the Jackass theme song. Oh. And so, so you've technically heard it, but they... Yeah, I think they're like an old old school sort of like punk ish band. I the only thing I know about them is the Jackass thing, but they also have a bass player named Mike Watt, who they made a, a, a bass called the Watt Plower. But be, being a bass geek, that's the only thing I actually know about this. They band. seem like they're, I don't know where they're from, but they seem like maybe that Minneapolis seemed like, like it wasn't Minneapolis, Husker Du Husker and all du. those guys coming out of there. They got a Midwest feel. And as I'm saying this, I'm actually looking them up, and they're from San Pedro, California. So disregard <laughs> everything I said. I'm a fucking moron. We'll cut, we'll cut I think I think musically, though, they're in that, that, in that sphere. Okay. All right. Well, there you have it. So, folks, listen to the album Double Nickels on the Dime. The band is the Minutemen. And that is going to do it for us here today at 1001 Album Complaints. I'm Adam. I'm Alan. And I'm Tom. Boosh. Oh, you could have had the boo 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 boosh boo boo.